Well, it's nice of you to welcome me here again. Um, just a warning, I am on duty, actually. I just skipped away from the hospital, which I'm allowed to do, but occasionally I have a preaching engagement. So I have a pager, as well as a radio mic, as well as a mobile phone. <laughs> so I'm a bit wired up at the moment. If it goes bleep, I'll have to just sort of pause and find out what the patient wants. <laughs> I come back to you. Um, so as most of you know, I, I work as a hospital chaplain full-time at the hospitals around here. So that's the Princess Royal, the County Hospital, the Children's Hospital, Hurstwood Park, Lewis Hospital, and anybody, anywhere else. There's about a 1,000 patient beds that we cover as a chaplaincy team. So that gives you an idea of the scope. We have a few volunteers like Janet that come and help us. <laughs> so. You're in a series on the Beatitudes, and you've got up as far as these two, which I'll just read to you from Matthew 5. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So I thought I'd give you a, a different reading on mercy, which is the one we had, which is the story of the unmerciful servant. <laughs> Just a sort of contrast between what happens when you get some mercy and when you don't get some mercy. And we'll have a look at these uh, two now, I don't know what that is. So we're going to ask ourselves the question firstly, are we merciful? Are we the merciful type of people? Are we like what is commonly seen in the media, people that seek revenge? That's the opposite of showing mercy. The other extreme is to seek revenge. I wonder if you've ever thought about seeking revenge on anyone. Anyone done you enough harm that you want to bang up for life or some other similar cliche that comes to mind that the media spill out on their headlines. This is the kind of thing we're looking at. If we extend mercy to someone, then we are actually being forgiving. And so in the Lord's Prayer we read, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There's a sense in which in that prayer that the Lord taught us, he is teaching us that we should not expect our sins to be forgiven if we don't forgive others their sins. It goes hand in hand, one with the other. It's not an either or situation. It's reflecting a similar pattern in the manner which we act, that God himself will act towards us. Hence, the end of that little story that Jesus said, even so will my heavenly Father. Wow. These parables of Jesus are quite tough to handle sometimes. They're not easy. They're not little panaceas for life. Their challenges. And it's why, unfortunately, a lot of ministers spend an awful amount of time talking about St. Paul. They can't handle Jesus and his Gospels. They're very tough to preach on. And so it's much easier, actually, to sort of skip over that and get off into Paul. He's a bit easier to understand sometimes, although he has his complications as well. <laughs> That's one of the reasons, because they are very difficult. 
to see what Jesus means when he talks about throwing people off to torturers and all that kind of stuff. It's not easy stuff. So we've read that parable of the unmerciful slave. I was going to read it to you if we, if we didn't have it read. And it rather speaks for itself. The total mercy given by the person in that story to the man that owed, I think it's something like, well, it's way, way beyond even an annual salary in those days. It's the kind of thing you'd have to mortgage your house to pay off. Probably the whole house. It's that kind of debt. If you don't know what a denarii is, it doesn't really tell you anything. But that's the level of debt that was talked about in Jesus' parable. The servant that owed this guy money was a pittance. Just a hundred denarii. It didn't amount to much at all. And he got the harsh treatment, whereas the other guy had been let off the lot. Forgave him the entire debt. It's not the kind of mercy we see in everyday life, people forgiving like that. You do occasionally come across it. I remember there was a, a police officer that I knew in the 60s, who I, I never met since, but I heard him on the, on the radio, on the, um, I think it was on the program on a Sunday morning that's about religion between 7 and 8. And he was by then a very senior police officer in the Greater Manchester Police. And he told the story of how his son had been killed in some kind of raid to do with terrorism in Manchester and how he forgave those that had killed his son. And it really stood out to me. Here's a man trained his whole life to catch people and put them in prison. And yet when it came to his own son being killed in the cause of so-called justice, he forgave him. Forgave whoever it was. Probably didn't know who they were. So it's not something we see every day. Mainly we see calls for vengeance. People say, oh, well, it would be a good idea to bring back capital punishment or something. You know, there's a sort of sense of you've got to get your own back. We actually live in an increasing litigious society. If you work for anything like the organization I work for, which is the NHS, that's who employs me, there's always a fear of litigation. If we make a mistake, if a doctor makes a mistake, if a nurse makes a mistake, even if I make a mistake, I could make a mistake, I could do something, and suddenly, you know, oh dear, why did he do that? Pay me some money, quick. It is increasingly legitimate society. It's following in Britain the pattern that really that's in America. Everybody demands their pound of flesh. They're interested in speaking about accidents or being merciful to the person that committed the whatever act it was that caused the problem. And you can get actually quite long-winded investigations in hospitals, long post-mortems, all because trying to avoid litigation, trying to come out with a story that makes some sense of what in fact was a simple mistake, but it looks bigger than that to the people involved. We all make mistakes because none of us are perfect, so we'll never get out of this endless circle unless we break it. Someone has to break it. Someone has to, along the line, offer mercy.
It's not even the even-handed idea that was laid down in the Torah. In Leviticus 24 and verse 20, you'll find this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth routine. That's the routine of the Middle East. Uh, we were hearing a bit about the Middle East in these prayers. Um, in the middle of next month, I'll be saying goodbye, to, or we, my wife and I will be saying goodbye to our middle son and their family who are going out as mission partners to the Middle East with InterServe. They're heading out into that part of the world, the same part of the world that we went out to back in the 80s and where I ministered and worked for some years. And that's the routine in the Middle East. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Well, these days, as in Syria, I've got a Kalashnikov, I've got a helicopter gunship, ha-ha. You know, it's that kind of, you hit me, I'll hit you even harder. It's that kind of routine. There's no mercy. People don't talk about mercy in those kind of societies. And it's even written, you see, it's written within the, the old form of religion. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a damaged limitation on vengeance. Vengeance that was a cult right through all those tribes in that area in the Old Testament. So you might think it's a bad piece of legislation, but actually it improved things in the Old Testament days. That was a better deal than was common in all the tribes around the Israelites. So that was an improvement in legislation, getting a bit closer. But it didn't solve anything, and you'll find there are long feuds running. It goes through generations and generations. No mercy, no quarter given from one to the next. And so it comes that mercy is not often given except at a price. And you'll know, of course, another thing that can happen in the Middle East is you can get taken hostage and someone demands a ransom. Yes, they've got a concept of mercy, but it involves a bit of money. <laughs> Pay me enough money and I'll show you a bit of mercy. And I'll tell you a story which is familiar to me because I worked with his wife in... Um, towards the end of the hostage crisis in which I was somewhat involved, the Western hostages in the 80s and 90s. You may remember Jerry Levin. He was a, an American reporter, Jewish reporter, came from the States. He was one of the hostages taken. You may not have heard so much about him as about Terry Waite. But I went with, uh, with his wife and some other Americans and visited people like the current... I think he's the deputy minister or something in Syria, Farouk Asha. He works directly with Bashar al-Assad. And I went to see him with some American Christian leaders to talk about this end game of the hostage crisis. And Jerry Levin's wife was with us. And she told me the story of how her husband had been the only Western hostage to escape. A ransom had been paid. I have at home the American Express check that his wife gave me with the details and the code names to speak to the man with the money if it ever became necessary again. Because by this stage, most of the Western hostages are being released. And in fact, the, one, the last one that was being released was being released while we were actually in Damascus. It was all going on behind the scenes. We were 
talking to government ministers about the very last one that was coming along. And it was just a simple phone call. You could phone this guy, philanthropist, living somewhere in Europe, and he would come up with whatever millions of dollars were necessary to ransom the hostage. And this was done for Jerry. So Jerry woke up in his room one morning in, up in the mountains, in, um, right up in the uh, mountains that go between Lebanon and Syria. It's ones that we drove on through from Damascus to Beirut. You go through all these mountains, and they're all ruled by these very violent tribes for many, many years that have all been into that kind of hostage-taking for centuries. <coughs> And he woke up, and he, to his amazement, he found that the chain that shackled his ankle to the radiator was not connected anymore. It loosened in the night, in his sleep. You couldn't believe it. Not only that, the window was open. It's on the ground floor. It's a bungalow or something up there. Hadn't got anything on his feet, though. Yeah, no footwear. <laughs> so mercy has its limits. Okay? No shackles, open window, you can go. We've had enough of you. And so he walked barefoot out of that room and out into freedom eventually. But mercy came at a price. A price of a significant sum of money from this unnamed benefactor in Europe. How do we receive mercy from God? Is it just given to us? It's not, is it? It might look like that on the surface. It may look like, yes, it's free. But it came at a price. It came at the price of the death of Jesus Christ. That's the price. The price of a man's life. The price of an innocent man being tortured and killed. That's the price of the mercy that God shows to us. And he was prepared to pay that price on his own without any support. Even his father deserted him as it were as he said on the cross why have you forsaken me? Isn't that amazing? God, in his mercy, showed us mercy. And so we are able then to walk free, unshackled by sin, unshackled by anything that gets in our way of a relationship with God. So that's the kind of mercy. So Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you live a life where you forgive people and you live in that sense of forgiveness, what you will enjoy more than anything else is a sense of your being forgiven by God. The mercy that you show to others, as it were, will return to you. And you will receive mercy. You will find that the mercy of God and even of others will come to you. And so the words of Jesus will be fulfilled and you will be blessed or made happy 
Now that sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Made happy, which is what the word kind of means. Because we live in an age where almost everything about blessed and happiness has completely been taken apart. If you, did you hear on the news last week the survey somewhere, the most happy people in England? Anybody hear where it was? Somewhere up north, wasn't it? Around Sheffield somewhere. Yorkshire? Yeah, you're happy if you live in Yorkshire, is that it? No, it's the and Shetlands. Shetlands? Oh, right, even further north. <laughs> in other words, you've got to escape from life almost altogether <laughs> to be happy. Well, that's a lot of what people try and do to be happy. They try and escape. Talk, well, you know, you'll be happy if you go on holiday, if you go on a cruise, or if you do that, or if you do this. That happiness has completely become wrapped up in material well-being. Whereas probably the example of these people in that story lived in quiet, quiet rural settings and were not plagued with all the annoyances of modern life and probably found it much more peaceful and as a result were much happier. I often wonder what we'll be like, well not what I'll be like, maybe definitely what I'll be like, but definitely what my grandchildren will be like when they get into their, well into their retirement. They're currently popping away on iPads and iPhones and ordering everything on the internet. At 85 on a computer, I don't think it's so hot. <laughs> and somebody will be screaming for a pen and paper and a checkbook. <laughs> you know, happiness doesn't come through an iPhone or all this other stuff that we get. It comes completely differently. It comes through relationship and relationship with God. And that's the kind of happiness, the kind of blessing that we look for. And that's what we shall receive. So the challenge to us in terms of mercy is in a world where people often call out for vengeance. Can we stand out as Christians? Can we be like that police officer in Manchester? And stand out as those who show mercy. And therefore demonstrate a completely different way of doing things. And then we come to the second one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So here we see two things again, which are never put together in modern life, certainly in the West. Happiness goes with holiness. Whoops, that's not exactly the front line of a tabloid, is it? <laughs> happiness and holiness, the two go together. Without one, not the other. So what does that mean? Jesus is really pointing to what really makes us genuinely blessed and genuinely happy. Without being pure in heart, we cannot see God. We cannot be in that deep relationship with him that actually we all really want especially those of us that have met Christ, know the power of his spirit in our lives and see God as our Father. That Trinitarian fullness of knowing God. Then we wouldn't want anything less. But we know that it only comes through being pure in heart. But nowhere in today's life will people normally equate this kind of happiness with holiness. 
This was the direct commandment to Israel. God said to them, Be ye holy, even as I am holy. Leviticus 11.44 Don't try being holy. He didn't say try. He said just be holy. How can we be holy? How can we be set apart? We have a song that prays that. Being set apart for you, Lord. The only way we can do it is to place ourselves in Christ, to ask him to take over our lives so totally that the holiness of God, as it were, surrounds us and his purity comes into our heart and lives. There you go. Amazing, isn't it, how they do that? What I'll do, I'll just go out and see what they want. Well, that's all right. It's nothing particularly urgent, so I can spend a few more minutes with you. So, yes, it's, it's really about holiness going with happiness. And the secret to that is where Paul talks about in Romans 12, verse 1, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. If we present ourselves to God, we will end up in the last verse of that hymn, living in wonder, love, and praise. That's true blessedness, living in wonder, love, and praise. So when we come before God, we will begin to really just get swept up in the joy of being with him. And that comes through this purity of heart, because we can't access that kind of thrilling spiritual experience unless God makes us pure himself. And then we will actually see God. We'll actually encounter God. It doesn't happen all the time in our lives. I remember a time um, in the 90s where the Holy Spirit was moving in some churches, and I was in one or two of them um, across Europe, where these things were happening, and people were just enjoying the presence of the Lord so much, they didn't want to go home. When they went home, they were still enjoying the presence of the Lord, they didn't want to go to work, and there were children that didn't want to go to school. So, it's, it, when you do enter into that thrilling experience of meeting Christ like that, um, it, it, something has to change, otherwise life sort of stops. But it is thrilling, and it is amazing what God can do. So, in the natural terms, we can't see God like that, because he's perfect. But we can enter into a really joyful relationship with him, and we can be pure in our lives. So, that's what we need to seek after. So, of these two... Beatitudes, we're challenged in two different directions. We're challenged to be merciful to all around us, and we're challenged to be pure in heart, so that we too can enjoy the mercy of God, and hopefully the mercy of others, and that we can also enjoy knowing God face to face. We will see God.